If you've ever wondered what it takes to become an air traffic controller, or what it's like being one, or the thought of talking to ATC makes you nervous, I'm Tim. And I'm Rob. Our combined flight experience exceeds 12,000 hours, and together we will answer those questions and more, along with this episode's guest, who should be introducing herself right about now. Hey everyone, I'm Lindsay. I'm an air traffic controller and a private instrument and seaplane pilot. I've had high-level experience as both a level 12 en route controller and am now a level 10 tower controller. If you're interested in becoming a controller and have questions about the hiring and life as, stay tuned for this next episode. That's really good. Are you sure you've never done that before? No. I just have the TikTok practice now, so I'm like, (laughs) gotta turn on that little secretary voice and away we go. Yeah, that, that was good. So as away we go, you're a pilot and an air traffic controller. Which came first, being a pilot or being an air traffic controller? So I actually went to school to become an air traffic controller with no interest in learning how to fly. I thought maybe I'll just do, you know, discovery flight, see what's on the other side of the operation. Uh, But, you know, as soon as I got my discovery flight, I was like, dang, you know, I love this too. And I was like, I need to figure out how to do both of these things because I definitely loved air traffic control and learning about it. It's like the first time I went to school and was excited about what I was studying and just couldn't get enough. Um, But then, you know, you guys know how it is. Once you get in an airplane, you're like, okay, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. Yeah, you get hooked. Yeah, so I was actually just, I grew up in the Seattle area. And to be honest, I wasn't like the best student in high school. I was great when I was applying myself and studying, but I was way more distracted with the social aspect of everything, like class president, you know, captain of the swim team, running around with friends. So aviation wasn't really on my radar in any way, shape, or form. And my dad, funnily enough, is a commercial airline pilot. So he was always kind of like, yeah, you know, this would be maybe an interesting thing you could study. I was like, oh, yeah, right, dad. (laughs) You know, what do you know? (laughs) So he was actually approached by an air traffic controller um, up in Alaska. She was a controller up there. And she just kind of had his flight and happened to talk to him like with her baby in her arm and he was kind of like who's this lady and what does she know about like how come she knows so much about my operation so as he was talking to her he just it hit him that like hey she's got the same personality as my daughter she clearly loves her job i should really get Lindsay um in contact with her so he came home with her email address and was like please just email this lady and so i begrudgingly did and she sent me back the most thorough email it was like here's all the programs you can study. Because at the time you had to get at least an associate's degree. She's like, we have a program up up here in Anchorage if you're interested. And she flew me up there, gave me a tour of every facility. And she said, you know, I used to do this in the military, but somebody really helped pave the way for me. So I'm trying to pay that forward. She said, if you apply to this program, move up here and apply yourself, like I'll hold your hand the whole way. So that's what I did. I just moved up to Alaska. As I said before, it was just the first time I ever sat down and studied something, it was just like, wow, I want to know even more about this. I want to become an expert in this field. So I did my air traffic control associate's degree. I applied, but as soon, basically as soon as I got that degree, they changed the hiring process. So I went back to get my bachelor's degree in aviation technology because the hiring process has always been a little bit unpredictable. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't putting all of my eggs in one basket. And I was able to get picked up on the next bid, so I went right to the academy, and the rest is kind of history. Wow, that's quite the story. It is, and it, it's nice that somebody was willing to take you under their wing and help you. And that is one thing I've 
I found in aviation, Rob, you're probably the, you can probably say the same, that aviation, for the most part, the people in it are the most helpful people to one another. If he, if any of us sees or comes in contact with somebody that wants to get into aviation, we're always more than willing to help. And that's I, I find that in aviation to be true more so than other fields. Yeah, if you if you you know if you generally if you show the interest, there's people willing to do exactly what happened with Lindsay, and and that's that's what makes this such a special uh, aviation environment to be in. Yeah, it was just really cool to also I think you know being a young girl, I just don't think I considered aviation. I'm not sure why. You know, nobody ever told me I couldn't do it. But just to see her and to see her workplace and it was just kind of like, I want to be you when I grow up. She was just the coolest. And we yeah. actually still stay in contact and she's she's now at Houston. But um, yeah, that's like, I think it's just important to meet someone and then you can relate to them and say like, oh yeah, like I'm like you and you love your job and I could probably do this too. And sometimes it just takes somebody that you look up to saying, you've got this, you know, and then you're like, you're right. <laughs> so I went on, I got like a 4.0 in college after pulling like probably a C average in high school if I ever went to class, you know. Um, so I think she's completely changed my life. I, I tell her this once a week. I'm just like, wow, when I take a look at the trajectory of my life, like you're just this foundation, you know, and it just was pure chance. Like there was no reason why we should have ever met. So I hope to be able to pay it forward as well just as she paved the way for me i'd like to do that for others well you know even just you being on here and talking to you know you know our audience um i have two teenage daughters myself uh, they've been involved in my aviation career i took them flying when they were young and you know we you you've had a similar situation likely you know your dad was you know showing you the ropes if you will showing you the airport everything um but there's a lot of people that just don't have that opportunity and when you come on here and have a discussion they realize that you know they can do the same thing and they may not have the connections though that that you and I or, or Trim or Tim had but you know by reaching out and, you know, just asking questions and connecting through whatever, you know, whether it be email or speak pipe or whatever, we can join our forces together and, you know, get more ladies in aviation. Yeah. And it's like you said earlier um, about everybody being willing to help. I totally echo that. And I think that's one of my favorite parts about the aviation industry is just everyone loves what they do you know it's such a cool industry you can find anything on planet earth that you might want to do and there's an aviation component um we just had an aviation day at the airport and somebody was talking about how they were an interior designer for boeing and i was like see every single time on planet earth you can do it around airplanes uh but i've also found just because everyone's so passionate they will absolutely if you show interest and you're genuine and you're like hey i I want to do this and I don't know how. Everyone is going to bend over backwards to show you exactly how they got there. They're so happy to share their stories. They're so healthy or happy to help people move up. And I think it's the best industry in the world, in my opinion. I agree. It's Absolutely. been a good, it's been a good industry for me. I can, I mean, it, I consider myself lucky to have had my, the same job for 17 years, but those opportunities do exist. But aviation as a whole is 
I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I don't want to yeah. do anything else. <laughs> One of the things that uh, Tim and I were talking about is um, I was not a grade A student. I had tremendous um, difficulties with math. Um, I actually re- repeated a grade at one point and I was really, you know, I never thought aviation was going to happen for me, to be honest with you. And, uh, I don't think my parents did either. And it was just some, some point that, uh, I knew that things were going to happen. I started, you know, you know, getting into the pilot side of things and eventually writing exams, but I've become so, uh, attracted to meteorology, navigation, and all of those things that, that we have to study as a pilot. And I, I love those things. Like, I mean, the, the stuff I was studying in school really, you know, it was, yeah, it was, you know, part of that, I guess, but it became a new language for me. And I totally understood the language and, and to the point where both Tim and I, you know, we became instructors, flight instructors, and you can't teach something if you don't know it well. And, um, you know, it was uh, really incredible to teach, to be honest with you. I, I very much miss teaching and, uh, it, it's, there's nothing better to be able to take someone who knows absolutely nothing about what they're about to do and see them walk out through a check ride and, you know, with their wings. It's pretty cool. I'll say this. I got C's also in high school. I failed a math class, but I still did this, but the the biggest determining factor is anything that a person does in a, any field, aviation or whatever industry, passion. If you've got passion for something, it makes it a heck of a lot easier and you're going to do really well at those topics that you're genuinely interested in that you want to do well in. And that makes all the difference. And I think that's what helped me um, making bad grades in school. It just, not that I was a bad student or not capable I wasn't interested in the things that were being taught. But then once I got into aviation in high school, it's like somebody turned on a light switch, a light bulb came on, and I really liked this and wanted to do it, and that helped. Yeah, 100%. The light bulb effect, I think my parents were always saying, like, how can we get you to be more motivated? How can we motivate you to do better in school? And it was just like, ding, I suddenly care about this, and I'm going to, you know, like, and... I've got it. It's memorized. It's easy. It's fun to study just because I actually care about these topics. And I think, too, my professors at my university, they really loved what they did as well. So it was like they were having fun teaching and I was having fun learning. It was just the perfect storm. And Lindsay, when you were in college studying ATC and then went on to the academy, what was the culture difference like? Was was the academy much, much harder than college or were they the same um no they're it's hard to describe the academy because it sounds like i'm making it up when i talk about it the academy and your um, cti program are supposed to cover the same stuff there's an atc basics course that's the first month that you're there then you move over into non-radar then you move over into radar But what has happened over time is um, also just timing wise, you have three months where you're at the academy, whereas your associate's degree is two years with professors who know and care about you and they know and care about the the whole world of air traffic because they just retired from whatever facility. And so 
the timing of it, there's no, there's a lot less pressure in college because it's you and your professor and you're trying to get your good grades. And if you don't get something, you can go ask and nobody's going to, you know, uh, think to treat you differently for asking a question. When you get to the academy, it's an audition. So you're there for three months total and every single test they make sure you know is career dependent. It's all about creating this high level of stress where everything you do and say is career you could potentially be a career-ending clearance, is what they say all the time. So um, completely different environments, completely different structures. You are there for the audition at the academy. You have the job, and they want to take the job away from you, or they want you to prove that you can't do the job. Whereas in college, it's a healthy learning environment. Um, does that answer the question? <laughs> yes, <it laughs> I don't does. know how much I can bash the academy. I guess they have to have a way to test people, but... Um, the academy. Yeah, and for anybody who doesn't know, the academy is in Oklahoma City. And yes. if a person wants to be an air traffic controller, where do they start? Do they have to go to college for air traffic control to like an accredited air traffic control program? Can they get a degree in anything and then transition over? Does it help to have a pilot's license ahead of time? Good questions. Good questions. So previously, um, I did listen to you guys interviewing a air traffic controller before and he was talking about the older hiring process you used to have to have at least an associate's degree from a cti program you would have to get your cti program's recommendation so you would have to be a, a good student with them there was a big atsa aptitude test which was kind of similar to the military testing where they test your math and science and you know you'd have a little radar scenario where the wind would change and you'd be putting in data entries and trying to get these dots to move around all while listening to people on the frequency, you know, just kind of multitasking stuff. So you had to have an 85 or above to be considered high, um, highly recommended. And you would provide these, your test score, your CTI recommendation, your grades, and then they would go off of your these highly recommended applicants and pick them after that. So in 2013, for whatever reason, they threw that entire hiring system out the window and they said, it's no longer working. At first, it was not promoting diversity is the excuse, that, you know, because we're just college graduates like, what's going on? First, it was in the name of diversity, we're going to open up to the whole country. And then it was like, oh, um, you know, this isn't actually creating any more diverse results. So we're just going to say it's for budgeting. I'm not really sure what the reason was. But at this time, <laughs> you know, to make this answer as long as possible, the uh, minimum requirements to apply to be an air traffic controller today are you have to be a U.S. citizen that speaks English, is under the age of 31, and you need to have three years of progressive work experience, whatever that means, or a college degree. You do not need both. So I think if you babysat when you were 13, you can, you can count that as progressive work experience. So that's all. You just make a little application on usajobs.gov. They're going to want to see your transcripts. They want you to put your resume into their resume builder. But that is the, uh, those are the minimum requirements to apply. So they usually get about 30,000 applicants, I think. And they usually only pick up about 1,000 people per year per bid. And then how many of those, of that number, actually finish? Um, so it depends if you go terminal or en route. The terminal program has a way higher success rate just because it's so much less to study at the academy. And the end's only 15% of the en route kids were making it to their facilities. And then 
you, of course, training doesn't stop there. You can wash out of your facility as well. So it's a really high attrition rate. And um, those are the numbers from then. If the terminal is easier, or not necessarily easier, but can you do terminal, the terminal program, and then at some point switch over to en route? Uh, no. So actually you sign when you apply something that says I'll do any job anywhere. Um, so you will get told by the FAA when you get your academy date, you've been selected for terminal or en route. And then that's the program you're in. When I was going through, they had a couple classes. They got there thinking they were going to do en route. And then in basics, they came in, which is like the first few weeks or whatever. They came in and said, just kidding, you guys are going to be terminal, moved them over to the other building. So it's completely at the FAA's discretion. And it's because their staffing is in such crisis now that they just have to able to put bodies in facilities and hope that it works out. When you're in the academy, do you are you essentially an FAA employee at that time? Are you getting paid some salary, like a small salary, or is it just yeah. all on your own dime? So you are an employee of Washington, D.C. So because it was a big push through our union that they used to not pay you when you went to the academy. Um, so you were having to, you know, quit your job, whatever you were doing before, show up to Oklahoma City, pay rent, figure out, you know, and also go through this program. So now you're officially hired to the FAA day one. They do your swear in um, and then you get paid per diem because you're technically an employee from D.C. And there's also some sort of housing allowance that you can sign up. So they have also contract. It's it's a kind of nice setup now. There's contract housing that um, most students hear about. And so like one of them is called Kim's Place. One of them is called Isolabella, but they will try your housing per diem to stay there. So it's kind of just this like, you know, you never see that money. You just sign the rental agreement for however long. But yeah, you get paid, you get per diem, and there's a housing allowance. Okay. Wow. That's all good to know. I, was, I wasn't sure what they did as far as pay if, they, if people just have to save up money and then go and put everything on their own dime. But that's, that's good to know. Yeah. Before pay- you get into call, sorry to interrupt there. Um, sorry, before you get into college and you're at, um, you know, junior high level, that kind of thing, um, are you, is it important to take STEM courses, science, technology, engineering, and math? I would say yes. I think it's good to have confidence in scientific courses. Um, I don't think they're really worried about your grades per se, um, before you get up, you know, accepted as an air traffic controller but i think especially for young girls if you could get stem science math and just the confidence too of like being in a male-dominated field of study and learning how to navigate that as early as possible i think for young girls too maybe a jujitsu class here and there just to to stand up for yourself (laughs) that's that's awesome um um Besides jujitsu, is there any other things that, um, you know, ladies can do to mentally prepare themselves before they, you know, start this journey? Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know if I can think of anything specific. If you're pursuing air traffic control, you're going to start hearing about this it factor. And people always say it's not necessarily like that air traffic control can be taught. You have to have this innate ability to turn a 2D image into a 3D picture in your mind. Like aircraft are moving across the screen and you need to be able to 
see what altitude they're at, like if they're going to be a conflict just by looking at that screen. Um, that's what I believe the FAA's new hiring process is trying to say is like anybody can be taught to do this. But once you find the you're in the program, they start talking about this. It's a personality that thrives here. You have to have this it factor. I think, honestly, you just have to go in with the I can do this and I belong here mentality and the rest will sort itself out. Okay, great. So I have another question. Once you get a job, once you gra graduate from the academy and move on to a facility, say you're there for two years, can the FAA transfer you to another facility or do you have to request a transfer? Yeah, no, the FAA is not going to move you. In fact, it's really hard to move around now just because everybody's staffing numbers are so low. But um, some places, if you're at your facility for two years, you're still in training. At an en route facility like the one I was at in D.C., the average training time, like once you leave the academy, they basically say, great, you passed. Forget all that. Welcome to the real world. And you're going to be training day in and day out for the next three to five years is the average time. And that's without any sort of stage delay. So for the end route, for example, you go in, the first position is kind of this little accessory data where you just get familiar. And then you're going to start your D sides. And the D side person is data, but they're responsible for routes. You have to know pretty much all this geography, all the fixes. And then you're also kind of the assistant to the radar controller. So you're catching feedbacks and stuff. Then once you get certified on all the sectors in your area on your D side, you go to our school. And then that's where you start learning how do we actually separate these planes I'm going to be the person making these calls. And then you have to certify as an R side on each side. So two years in, you're probably still training. Um, it would be unwise to put in an application to transfer because that would just be a big announcement to the facility. They're like, I don't want to be here. So there's definitely a, um, you know, once you certify, you just get better and better and better at that airspace for the rest of your career. The FAA just put all this money into training you. They want you to stay there and... Transferring out is more rare than people who stay at one facility for their whole career, at least at the NRU high-level stuff that I'm used to. Okay. When you're uh, when you're doing your training, uh, we'll go with the en route, do you have um, someone mentoring you, sitting right beside you, and can overrun, like, how does that work? Is there yeah, someone absolutely. that can click out over top of you, or how, how does that work? Yeah, you're assigned a training team as soon as you get out of your first, you know, you, when you first arrive, it's the map test. You have to learn all these um, sector, like there's the big map kind of jet airways test for the whole facility. Then you go specifically to your area. Then you're going to go specifically to each sector within the area. So they've divided all this airspace up basically into this is a chunk of the sky and this is the chunk of the sky's mission. You know, in this sector, we're going to do spacing for Kennedy and we're also going to start staging our Phillies, et cetera. So as soon as you get done with the classroom simulator session, you're going to go onto the floor and it's called on-the-job training and you're going to be plugged in with your trainer for until you're ready to be certified. So there's going to be like skills checks every month. You're going to have um, a maximum amount of time you're allowed to train for and a minimum. So you have to see at least the minimum hours and then you're going to hopefully certify somewhere between the minimum and the maximum if you get to a point where you're at the maximum hours and you, let's say, like fail a check ride, then they're going to start the washout process. And either if you're at Washington Center, for example, if you get one sector there, 
you're seen as a level 12 with one sector, so you could probably move to a lower level facility, no problem. But if you have no certifications and you fail a check ride, then they start the washout process. I guess what I was referring to was if you are on the mic, let's say, and you're a trainee, I mean, obviously you're a very high level trainee. If, um, if a mistake is kind of being made, is, is the person sitting beside you able to override what you have done or about to say? Does that make any sense? Sorry, I wasn't clear. They're plugged in directly next to you and they're standing over your shoulder, breathing in your ear the whole time. Oh, depending on how busy the session is, like they might take over and work it and kind of talk to you about what they're doing the whole time. There's no way to really like turn the traffic down for you to train. So your first day of like, for example, training on the radar side, you're the one that's supposed to be doing all the talking. But real life is so much busier than the simulator. Your trainer is probably going to jump in there. And if you say something wrong, they're going to overkey you. We have two jacks, like a trainee and a trainer jack. So even if I'm still talking and my trainer overkeys me, their voice will go out instead of mine. So it's designed like there's always someone who can intervene. I've had that happen. But our clearance was cleared for takeoff and the trainer couldn't get on quick enough. We are about 60 knots and then all we hear is cancel takeoff clearance. And we just had to bring it to a stop and taxi back and get in line. We got to skip ahead. But if I were a student pilot flying into a controlled airport or even a new, newly certified private pilot that's nervous about talking to ATC, what would you tell me to make me comfortable talking to ATC? I think for any pilot who is new, first and foremost, just give yourself a break because you're brand new and you're learning a whole new language. And it's one thing to sit there and read about the words you're supposed to say and read about the procedure. And it's a whole other thing to fly it. And it's even another added layer to have to say the words out loud. You can't learn a new language just by reading it. You have to practice. So I think if I were to practice without actually, you know, paying for the flight hour, or putting myself in that situation where I'm so stressed out, one of the best ways that I recommend is to go listen to ATC live. If your issue's taxiing, go pick a busy airport. And as the controller reads the taxi instructions, you're going to read it back to the phone. And I would write it down and I would just kind of quiz yourself, like, how much of that did I understand? You can also practice listening to other people's readbacks and try to say it along with them. Pick out your pilot voice. Um, If your issue's approaches and you're like, man, I really wish that I could see this approach before I have to go fly it. Then you could, there's probably somebody on YouTube who's recorded that exact approach and posted it, and you can watch that and practice saying the words as well. Look at your little chart. Make sure you know your fixes. You can be as prepared as possible, and I think part of that is practicing those words out loud. When we were learning how to speak air traffic control lingo, we would all sit around and practice giving these clearances. And I really think that there's some merit to saying those words actually out loud. And that is a great point. And another way that I know of that pilots can use to practice if they have any of the major flight simulators, whether it's Microsoft Flight Simulator, X-Plane, P3D, Pilot Edge is a program that uses real air traffic controllers. They have a large coverage area that's getting larger, but they use real controllers. All the procedures are the same. You can fly from the comfort of your own home using Pilot Edge and practice that two-way radio communication And then when you get into the real airplane, it's easier. That way you just, you have the ability to listen and speak the same way you would in the actual airplane. I've used it and it 
it is fantastic. So for anybody that's listening, that's new, that's nervous, I highly suggest checking that out because that's also um, just a very, very great uh, tool for any pilot. As you know, I'm from Canada and how's it going, eh? Um, an interesting fact about Canada is that we use a privately run not-for-profit corporation called NAV Canada. And I'm sure you interact with them at some point. Um, I mean, I, I regularly fly into Toronto airspace, Vancouver airspace, um, Seattle airspace, and, and, you know, there's a lot of interaction between U.S. controllers and Canadian controllers. Is there anything that you could tell us about how um, there, there's agreements in place for a U.S. controller to handle traffic that's actually in Canada and vice versa? Yeah, it would be in a letter of agreement or a, a standard operating procedure, and it would be on a facility-to-facility basis. But, yeah. Like, so like letter- for example, if if you're... If you're an aircraft coming from, um, I, I don't know, somewhere in California, you're going to come through Seattle airspace and then eventually land in Vancouver. Um, there's just a portion of, um, I believe it's the, like the Whatcom VOR, which is near Abbotsford, um, which is actually in the United States, but uh, Canadian controllers actually, you know, would would vector an aircraft in that area. So as you said, it's it's a letter of agreement between agencies? Yes, it would be a letter of agreement between um, Vancouver, whatever their facility is called there, and um, the center at Seattle. So they would say, like, we've given this chunk of our airspace to you for control of the following craft in the following cases. And anytime we want to deviate from this written text here, we're going to have to call and ask for approval. And that's basically how the whole system works across the board. But I think I said it earlier, everything only works if you can predict what's going to happen when these aircraft enter your airspace. So we have everything written down, procedures, expectations. And then if anything is off script, then you can call and ask for approval or you have to coordinate it in some way. Beg for forgiveness. Speaking of begging for forgiveness, that's a perfect segue to my next question. (laughs) If a pilot has a disagreement or misunderstands a controller, rather than arguing over the frequency or giving the controller attitude, because I haven't found a pilot yet that's won a battle between a pilot and a controller. It's like, if that happens, just ask the controller what they need and go do it. Fly a heading, altitude, whatever. What is the best way if a pilot really thinks, okay, I wasn't wrong in that situation. We need to go check the tapes. How can a pilot, if they want to continue that conversation, what's the appropriate way to do that after they get on the ground? Uh, (laughs) So I was always told the only thing you're accomplishing by having any sort of disagreement on frequency is you're probably going to make it on YouTube somewhere and half the people are going to call you an idiot and the other half are going to, you know, call the other person an idiot. Um, In my opinion, an angry controller is an overwhelmed controller. And if you try to get into an argument with them at the end of the day like they are the ones in charge the person with the information is the one with the power they're the ones that see the other traffic they're asking for something in the name of safety you know they always have that higher arguing power but another thing that's important the distinction between controllers and pilots is like i think in a lot of cases pilots um 
sorry, trying to think of how I want to say this. So if you were to call, okay, so I was also trained if a pilot does something and it's a no harm, no foul situation, don't file a report if you don't have to. You know, as long as there wasn't anything egregious, like an airspace violation or some crazy resolution advisory, there's some things that we have to report. And if we don't have to report them, I'm not going to because I know that the pilot could potentially get in a lot of trouble for something that in the end of the day, like everybody makes mistakes. It doesn't go the other way. I don't think there's anything a pilot could do that would cause a controller to get in serious trouble for the reasons that I've suggested above, like or before, just that every decision we're making is in theory with safety in mind. Um, so I think you should call. I think you should file every ATSAP you possibly can on any situation that hits you wrong. If the controller happens to be someone who gets a lot of complaints, everyone's going to be thankful that another one's added to the list. If, um, if there's something wrong with the system and you file these complaints, somebody somewhere is keeping track of them and hopefully we can fix a problem. So I think if there's ever an issue, you can call the facility and ask. I, I know of a bunch of pilots who did that at CDC and there was always a reason. And there's a big mystery, especially with Enru. Nobody knows like what we're even doing in these buildings or why we're making the calls that we are. And I think more communication, the better. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, 100%. You're an air traffic controller and you're a pilot. We didn't really talk about that too much. Um, how does that help each other? For starters, just the radio frequency talking on the radios has never been a problem for me. So that helps with my pilot. I think it's just always important when you can understand the other side of an operation, especially something like aviation where, you know, if pilot your, your life's in that plane, I think the more you know about what's going on in the system that you're participating in, the better. And I think it makes me a better controller as well because I just can put myself in the I can put myself in the pilot's shoes you know every clearance I'm making sure that I'm telling them why if it's something unexpected I just think it's the perspective of the more information you can have on something that you're involved in the better absolutely I know that for myself um you know when I'm flying in busy airspace and I'm in the clouds completely IMC and I'm, I can see TCAS targets all around me. There, you know, it's just like, looks like a big nest below me. Um, you know, we have to have so much confidence in the air traffic control system. And I don't think people really realize how much <laughs> we are literally putting our lives in your hands. So thank you very much, first of all. Um, you're, you know, extremely valued and, um, you know, your 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 lives our lives or our lives are in your hands and thank you for that look looking after us and uh you know as a pilot who's flown into very busy airspace as as, as you know tim as well um it's quite amazing to think about all of that traffic that's down there and then we're just this one little airplane coming into this one little spot and we get there and it, it, it's a seamless thing that happens, but it, it to me, it's quite amazing. Um, yeah. One other real quick question. Uh, so, Lindsay, one of the things that um, I use a lot here in Canada is uh, Controller Pilot Data Link, CPDLC. And in Canada, we use it rather differently than the United States at present. 
we would log on uh, while we're on the ground uh, at at um, a major airport takeoff, and we use it basically seamlessly throughout the flight while we're in Canadian airspace. We can receive um, uh, frequency changes. We can actually receive clearances through CPDLC, and we can actually add those clearances uh, digitally into our FMS and add them into our legs page and actually go direct to that. I know that's not something that's necessarily available in the United States yet, but how do you see that um, the future of um, the air traffic control system changing because of CPDLC? So CPDLC, all of the implementation of it was in 2020. So a lot of facilities, um, we were able to get ours turned on at Washington Center right before everybody got shut down and everybody had to leave. So, for example, New York Center, I don't think has it yet because everything just got pushed back so far. But I love it. There is just something that just is so satisfying about being able to, like, switch an aircraft that isn't CPDLC while I simultaneously click all these other aircraft off my frequency (laughs) just a one and done and as far as the en route environment goes there's so many things that we're going to be able to do Um, for example during weather deviations which are the most stressful operations possible on the east coast just like I was saying before everything's so standardized and orderly and under control you put a thunderstorm in the middle of that and airplanes are just going absolutely everywhere so what we can do is upload you by like click 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 on my scope around the thunderstorm and then I can send you those waypoints and you can upload those into your FMS and I can say this is what the last aircraft flew to deviate so this is your new clearance let me know if you need to deviate off of these waypoints and we can do all that without having to explain it in words over the frequency taking forever so I'm really excited about everything that's coming out Um, as of now we don't have the automatic frequency change like we can see that you've switched frequencies but it's still requiring voice and then we have to click it on so yeah cpdlc i think is going to be a huge time saver we're going to be able to get more airplanes probably through the same sectors without having as much frequency congestion which is and just the fact that we can eliminate those hearback readback errors with just like (laughs) yes no instead of you know reading i'm sure you guys have had a full route clearance in the air it's like no one has time for that. Not on a busy frequency. It's no. No. <laughs> you have a question or misunderstood something, it just compounds the problem. Yeah. Yeah, and like sometimes with a language barrier, it's it's a nightmare. Well, Lindsay, thank you very much for coming on the Corporate Pilot Guys podcast. Uh, you were on one of the first episodes. We want to thank you very much for being here. Um, um, I think you are going to inspire a lot of ladies out there to get into air traffic control, into aviation, and uh, really just let everybody know that, you know, this is a welcoming place to be. Um, and you, I think you've done a really, really great job of that. Thank you very much for coming on to the Corporate Pilot Guys podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was such an honor and so fun. And it's just my life mission to explain what Andrew Air Traffic Controllers do. So thank you for giving me that platform. And Lindsay, if anybody has a question about air traffic control that they would like to ask you directly, how can they do that? Thank you for asking. I have recently started a TikTok and an Instagram account called Sky Lady Lindsay. I'm just basically going to be documenting my voyage to get my commercial pilot's license and then using my air traffic control background to kind of overlap and explain what's going on 
in the sky, like as I go through my flight lessons and cross-country flights, etc. So if anybody has any questions, they can reach me there, and hopefully you guys will see me on YouTube soon as well. We'll be looking for you. Really, best of luck to you. Thank you so much.